You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to part two of this podcast with Delamitri's Justin Curry. Now, the band were dropped from their label after their first album, and they went off to the States, which proved to be the most formative period of their life. Here, Justin talks about their success in the late 80s, the dissolving of the band in 2002, the return to the studio for their latest album, but first, that period in the States. The other thing that was musically formative was we went into a lot of college radio stations because quite a few college radio stations played the first Telemetry record. Uh, and we would talk to these guys and go, what else are you listening to? And, you know, they would play some really interesting American indie music, but they were also listening to, like, deeply mainstream, white, Midwestern shit, you know. Uh, and, that, and they didn't really see any difference between... Uh, you know, Bob Seger and R.E.M. They were, they were they was rock, it was alternative rock to them, you know, or, or it was just rock. Uh, and that was, that just blew all the kind of punk rock uh, puritanism away. It just blew it away because it didn't matter anymore. You, you could, if these guys thought we were the same as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, then we were. We were, the, we were the same genre. It was just rock music. So uh, that it just meant we could take the straight jacket of taste and, uh, um, you know, uh, yes, the straight jacket of taste just went. And uh, it meant that we could write things in any mode we like. We could write things in a blues mode. We could write thing, things in a country mode. Um, and also, actually, prior to going to America, we, we started listening to quite a lot of country music. And that was quite a big change as well. But yes, the, the American trip, changes as people and as musicians uh, and it completely changed our our opinion of of Americans whom we snootily thought were just all big fat idiots that you know like Ronald Reagan before we went over there and then we, we lived and effectively worked with these people for days at a time and were overwhelmed by their generosity their intelligence their you know their cultural acumen they were just all these people were just fascinating, you know, interesting, uh, really deeply decent people. Um, so, yes, America became, uh, uh, unlike other bands' experience of America, which you see it off from a tour bus, and you can, you can end up being extremely cynical about America in, in that environment. We'd, we'd been living with people's parents and, and, and with our extended families and, and uh, sleeping in their bedrooms and... Uh, Swimming in swimming in their pools, or or you know, sitting in their yards drinking. Shit. Did that make you more focused as as a band, or you know, particularly you and Ian, obviously, as as uh, the, the writers? Did it make yeah. you much more focused in terms of where you wanted to go, what you wanted to do, and that meant that when you came back, I don't know what the situation was and how soon you got another record contract, but when you came yeah. back, you knew exactly where you were going. Yeah, that, I mean, we went, we went to the States to achieve two things, to get round it in one piece and to come back with a, a, an indie record deal. Uh, and we'd, we'd set our sights on a, a label called Big Time in Los Angeles, which is, yeah, and just an indie record company. So... We spoke to them when we were out there and when we came back, they sent us a bit of money to do some demos. So we did a bunch of demos that were, I, I guess would have been probably 
I suppose would constitute the sort of second Delamitri indie album. Um, and we felt that if we if we could get through that experience, we could do anything. We, we really felt we could do anything because, um, uh, you know, you know, I suppose like the, the, the Beatles coming back from Hamburg, if, you know, they must have thought if we can play like 12 hours a day, we can fucking do anything. If we can get these drunken sailors dancing, you know, or stop them fighting. And if we can just improvise, you know, daft, bits of comedy uh, uh, then you know we can if we can get to that we can get to anything and you're sleeping on the fucking roadside and running away from electric storms and having band meetings at the Grand Canyon and being genuinely hungry for months at a time um, you, you just think fuck me we did that you know and it, it, made, it made us feel like we were better than anybody else you know um, because nobody else had as, as far as we knew, no other bands in our milieu had, had done anything like this. Uh, actually, going to the states with no money and just and kind of busking it, you know. Um, it's an incredibly so, brave thing to do. I think it's an well, amazing. We were, we were, yeah, I mean, it was brave. The, the, the bravest person was our manager Barbara, and that she she had the the chutzpah to put it together. And think that it might work, and, it, and of course it didn't work. I mean, it, 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 it didn't work because we didn't raise the amount of money we thought we were going to raise. Um, but in some ways, in some ways, it did work because we did all the gigs. Um, I mean, we had to beg, you know, we had to beg for money, but we we did do the gigs. Um, so, but then what happened after we got back was we we did the big time demos, which were indie. They were probably a bit less indie than the first Christmas album, but not much. But then Ian and I started writing separate things that were very sort of mainstream in Americana. And then we started thinking, shit, these songs are really mainstream. Is there any point in putting mainstream songs out on a small label? Um, so because our music just morphed quite quickly post the American trip into, um, into mainstream rock music, we, we very quickly went from focusing on getting a small deal and doing a small scale thing to thinking we should sign to another major, major label. You know, we've got, we've got the experience or writing pop songs, we, we should go for it. And so we, that was a complete shift of, of um, planning, you know. I remember being... That's uh, a day, I should say. I remember being on MTV at that time, MTV Europe, which was started in 1987. And I used to interview people and present the news on the channel. And yeah. it was the era of 87. And I think you came along in that sort of era with um, yeah. waking hours. But your first two singles, and I think I've got this right, your first two singles didn't chart, did they? So it, no. So it must have also been a sort of hit at that point. Okay, we've got our direction. We know where we want to go. We've created yeah. songs that were, we really can stand behind now because they're yeah. really part of us. And then the first sense is, oh, shit, this doesn't work. So how, how was that and how did you get through it? Or did that process just happen quickly and in a nice way? <laughs> well, it did happen in a nice way because we got radio play. Um, so Kiss the Sing Goodbye, which came out, I think, in August 89, I think. Um, uh, it got, I think it got a bit of Radio 1 play, certainly at night, but it got a lot of commercial radio play. So I would sit in my bedroom at night and 
tuned to the stations and I would hear it a lot. So that was super encouraging. And also it sounded really good in the radio. So that, that, that made us think, look, we've done the right thing here. We've, you know, we've, we've made the right sort of record. Because um, every time we heard those, the, the, the um, sort of sound of kisses thing behind the radio, it just leapt out because it, 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 it wasn't soaked in all that 80s reverb like everything else was at the time. Um, so we thought we've got, we might have a bit of a chance here. Um, so we weren't distressed that, that the first two singles didn't get into the top 40. I mean, they saw, I think they did okay. I think they charted outside the top 40 fairly respectably. Um, and we were also pretty convinced that A&M were going to keep going because uh, we had a two-album firm deal, which is quite unusual in those days. So we knew we were going to get a second album. So we weren't, we weren't panicking about these mainstream things not being hits. And the, also the audience was growing a bit because we had this radio play on, on local radio stations. So if we did a university gig, uh, less people would drift away. They would, more of them would stick around to watch us. So it felt like we were going in the right direction. But, you know, as, as you're, you know, sort of hinting, the absolute key in those days was you had to get into the top 40 because if you got into the top 40, you'd be on the television, you might get top of the pops, and then overnight you were a successful group, you know. It was, it was just that, it was that simple. That was the equation. To get top 40, get top of the pops, you're famous. Yeah, I mean, it was the equation. I know it's not the equation for a, a band because... The equation is, am I doing what I want to do in life? Am yes. I creating something for me that's worthwhile and that the yes, audience but we were, like? But, but it's we, very interesting as well, I think, because it is something that you need from an audience, that sort of feedback, and that is in a massive way if you get that success. Yeah, uh, but our, our thing was, because we'd been an arty indie band and then suddenly we'd started writing mainstream songs, we were very... Um, we, were, we, we had commercial ambition for the songs because we, we loved the songs and we, we loved Waking Hours, but we didn't think it, it, we could justify it unless it was in the charts. So it, it, it does. I mean, not because we wanted to be successful, but because that was that, the charts are where that shit belonged. You know, you know the, the first time the album didn't belong in the charts. It belonged in, you know, indie clubs and, and, and in polytechnics, you know. Uh, that, that's where that music sat. But because we'd written these fucking mainstream, slightly Americana things, um, they didn't make any sense outside of the, the mainstream. So we, we, were, we were really keen to have a hit, really keen to have a hit. I mean, I, again, not, not for commercial reasons so much as uh, the, the, the sort of creative sense that that's where that stuff belongs. You know, it belongs... You know, we want to be. We want housewives who listen to Radio Two to to hear this stuff. Uh, we didn't want them to hear the old stuff because they they wouldn't have understood it. You know, um, forgive the term housewife, but that, that was that that was the thinking at the time. You know, I um, am a housewife. <laughs> well, so am I. You just described me because <laughs> I was listening to it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's made me very happy. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In terms of success, though, When Nothing Ever Happens came out, and it was massive, and MTV played it to death at that uh, that time. Right. And um, 
I just wonder whether it changed your mentality in any way to have that success and to suddenly be recognisable um, and to yeah. have that confirmation in some way. Yeah. The validation was good because, you know, the, the incredible snobbery of the, the sort of hipper parts of the Glasgow music scene had always thumbed their nose at Delamitri, which we took some pride in, but it, we took a hell of a lot more pride in in beating them at their own game, which was, you know, being in the charts. So that was that was very uh, uh, revenge is sweet. Revenge really is sweet, and I, I, I you know, uh, don't let anybody tell you different. Uh, but um, other than that, I don't. I might be wrong. I don't think. It had that much effect because we were so long in the tooth by that point. I mean, you know, I'd been in a band called Dylan Mitchell since 1980, so it'd been at least 10 years of a young person's life that I'd been doing this. And then I was, people were recognizing me in the street. So I think we found it, it was a bit odd, but we found it very amusing. Partly because it immediately made our lives easier. You know, we had, we were playing nicer venues, we had nicer dressing rooms, we had a nicer van. What's not to love about that, you know? Things are actually improving just in terms of the quality of our, our lives. The, the sort of fame aspect we dealt with immediately by nipping it in the buds. We didn't, we didn't play up to it. We didn't glam up. We didn't start buying expensive clothes. We didn't change. We didn't move out of our flats in the middle of Glasgow. We didn't stop going to the pubs that we went to. We were just there, you know. Um, so that, the slight weirdness of being known uh, dissipated very quickly because we just we just didn't react to it. We just we just kind of ignored it. Uh, and Glasgow is quite a good place to be on the telly last night because people will just they'll be quite blunt with you. You know, um, I mean, I, I tried to the day after we were on top of the pops the first time. I got, got I tried to get on a bus just around the corner from my flat to go into town, and the bus it was yeah the, the bus driver. The bus driver said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going to town. He went, get to fuck. I said, so what do you mean? What do you mean? He went, you're not talking the pops. I say, you're not getting the fucking bus. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me on the bus. <laughs> so I, mean, I mean, I know that it's a bit of a cliche that, you know, Cleveland and Glasgow and these post-industrial towns are, are quite f- sort of frank, or the people are quite frank and bald with their, the way they, the way they react to um, people, people that they perceive that might be sort of elevating themselves. I think there is some truth in it. So we, you know, I, I mean, I think if we'd lived in London, it'd be a lot weirder. And I think we'd have ended up going up our own fundament if we'd lived in London. But living living in Glasgow, it was partly people were really pleased for you and really proud of you, and also partly they they would just take the the, the absolute piss out of you. So. That none, that none of that felt too mad. Uh, and also we felt like we deserved it. We felt like we'd we worked really hard. We made a really good first record, which got savaged by the critics because of a mistake with the record company. We'd made a really good second record, which is very different from the first. And we thought, yeah, we've, it felt totally deserved to be, you know, flying around Europe doing a promo tour and eating in nice restaurants or whatever the, whatever the glamorous side of that is. I don't know. Well, one of the things that I think really uh, speaks for the quality of the band is that you continued on a on that level of success till about two thousand and two as a band, and yeah. 
um, that's a long period. I mean, yeah. if you look at pop bands, I mean, I, we did research at MTV in, in late 80s about the length of a pop band or the length of a pop star, their main part of the career is about four years. And yeah. then, you know, you went on for like 12, 14 years of success. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the success dipped, but so by 97, the success dipped, but we were, uh, we were on Radio 1 over those three albums consistently with every single, you know, with like all four singles from each album. Uh, radio 1 played us to death. Uh, and, and commercial radio, the big commercial radio stations played us to death. Why that is, I don't know. I think there was a lot of luck involved. The record company was certainly a lot to do with that. They had a brilliant promotions department. They were they were very supportive of the record company. They let you do things in your own way. They didn't try and force you to do things that you were uncomfortable with. And because we'd never been part of, uh, I mean, apart from the early postcard years, we, I mean, we, we weren't part of the postcard scene anyway, because we'd never been part of a scene or a movement or a, a thing we just slipped between the, the, the cracks at, at radio and radio loved us because we were sort of rock. We were sort of pop. Uh, we weren't, you know, we weren't sort of pre-Brit pop. We weren't uh, uh, indie dance. We weren't anything trendy. So that, I think a, a, a lot of radio producers just thought, well, that's just reliable. You know, we can play that and it's not going to frighten the horses and it works. Um, so yeah, uh, and and we did make radio friendly records, you know. We we and we thought about it. We thought we we were very concerned with how they were mixed, and I mean, especially by the time we got to Twisted, um, and we were we were really concerned with being a pop rock band. We wanted to be a rock band live, but have radio hits, you know. And um, we got as you're saying, we got away with it for quite a while, you know, which was quite remarkable without any great pressure. There was no pressure from like the tabloid press there was no huge pressure from the record company to to move up another gear to be playing stadiums you know we just carried on in this middle ground of the mainstream which was an extremely um uh comfortable place to be was waning success a reason that in 2002 that you went your separate ways for a while yeah and so that was a very comfortable decision between you that wasn't something yeah. that, that everyone was like, oh, no, I want to carry on. And you were saying, no, I'm going to go. It was something that was a mutual agreement. Well, the, well the, that decision was made between Ian and our, me and our manager, John. Uh, so we got dropped by A&M. That had, that had become, it wasn't A&M then. It was Mercury at that point. It had been bought over so many times. And, uh, it wasn't the label that it had been. Um so we got dropped by Mercury, which we which we were uh, more than happy about, uh, and we sort of took stock for a couple of months. Um, and my assumption was that we would just sign to a sort of beggars banquet type label and make albums on smaller budgets and play to smaller crowds and keep going for another ten years or something. That was my assumption, but then we had a meeting and. Um, Ian and John said, I mean, that could be quite depressing. And I thought about it and, uh, I, you know, and I thought about some of the kind of half-empty halls that we played on the last tour in 2002 in the UK. And I thought, yeah, that could be quite depressing. <laughs> uh, and also in those days, this was before the days when you could make money on the road. It was before ticket prices went through the fucking roof. So um, 
it, that didn't look particularly appealing. So we just stopped. We just and and nobody there was we'd we'd done Delamitri. Nobody wanted it. The audience didn't want any more. You know, they they had nobody had bought the the last album. Can you do me good? Um, there was only one single from that, which didn't get played on the radio. It was it was definitely over. You know, definitely over. I mean, you said you'd done Delamitri. You went off and you've made four albums in in between. And I and I've got to jump, but you you made four albums in between. But then the decision mm. came um, to reform, as it were, yeah, and to yeah. create another album. What, why did that come about, or how did that come about? Well, it it came about because the reason we stopped is that the phone wasn't ringing. There were there were not cues of promoters wanting us to play in. Germany or uh, the United States or the UK or Australia or any of the places that we'd previously been reasonably successful. Um, and we didn't really think the phone would ever ring again. I mean, I suspected that it might because I'd seen a few bands just dis- drop off the radar uh, and then all of a sudden come back into the sort of public consciousness for weird Strange reasons, like something, you know, a track would crop up in a film, or, or, you know, something would get, something would get played on a public holiday on the radio, and people would go, "Oh God, that band were quite good." So I had, a, I had a vague feeling that the phone might start ringing again, but I wasn't terribly sure. So yes, I was just getting on with doing what I was doing, and so was Ian. Um, and then our manager called up, and I suppose twenty thirteen or something, twenty maybe twenty twelve. And said, "Oh, you know, your agent thinks that you might be able to play Hammersmith Odeon," and so that—that that was it, really. That was oh, and I, I think we just quite liked the idea of playing Hammersmith Odeon and and making some money because by by then you could make money on the road because, as I say, all the money had gone out of CD sales because because recorded music was free, and all the money had gone into the live arena because all of a sudden audiences who weren't buying records had spare money to spend on uh, concert tickets. And so people just started going to a lot more gigs and paying a lot more money for the, for the gigs. So that was really interesting. It's like, well, fuck, we could actually, we don't have to go make a record and, and get on that this treadmill of promoting album tour and all that sort of stuff. We could just do, go and do a bunch of gigs for fun, but make a lot of money. Uh, what's not to love? What's not to love about that? So that's really what happened was that the, the music business had turned on its head in the meantime uh, and gigs became viable, um, a, a viable activity in, in terms of finance, you know, which they weren't before. They were, you know, everybody's gigs in the 90s were effectively supported by the rec- recorded music industry. You know, they were all underwritten by record companies. So that's why tickets were so cheap. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. We decided on the, the 2014 tour not to do any new material. Uh, and then by the time we got to 20, the 2018 tour, we'd started writing new material for that tour. So it was, it was a sort of natural progression. I was the most resistant. Ashley, our drummer, and Ian were really up for it. They really thought it'd be a great thing to do another record. I canvassed a lot of my mates and said, why would we do this? Because I, 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 I really hate bands that 
that piss off for 10 years and then come back and make another record and sully their back catalogue. That just drives me nuts. Um, so I was really against it. But all my mates went, oh, it'd be brilliant, it'd be brilliant, brilliant. I mean, to a person, every, every I spoke to was really excited about it. So that made me think, well, I better go and write some fucking Delamitri songs then. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of Delamitri songs. And I thought, oh, these are, these are quite good. I wouldn't have written these if there hadn't been the possibility of Delamitri making an album. Well, that's quite interesting. And then I, I started to really enjoy writing for write, writing for the group again, you know, because previously I'd really enjoyed not writing for the group. I'd really enjoyed just writing anything up anything I cared to write whereas writing for a group is a more much more focused uh, thing you know and it's it's more you're more limited in your scope of what you can write for a band I think and that, that's a good thing because it forces you to think in different ways. One thing that I think well I'm, I'm going to say that maybe there's something in, in, in common because I'm a screenwriter and what I do right. when I write screenplay is I create a world and that world is then I put a story within that world around the theme that I want to explore and um and i always think that is something similar to creating music because you're creating i don't know which comes first but you're creating the music and the sort of lyrics go in and what you do with the lyrics is somehow they um sometimes go against what the music stands for the music is you know uh it's it's positive and it gives you a good feeling and the lyrics are sometimes really unexpected, you know, yeah. and uh, and I wouldn't say negative, but they've got this sort of touch to them, which is really, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. So how do you go, go about creating a song and what do you, what do you want to achieve by it? Because that dynamic is really Delamitri dynamic yeah. within a song. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm not conscious of that too much. And I wouldn't want to be, you know, I, as a writer yourself, you know that self-consciousness is the enemy of all creativity. So that's not something that I consciously think about. But if I'm co-writing with Ian, the music will tell me what the lyric is. So as you're saying, even though a lot of the songs that bands like us write, the music's quite positive and sometimes the lyrics can be quite... Uh, it's hard to find an adjective uh, that isn't the word dark, which is such a sort of meaningless cliche, but... Um, yes, the lyrics can be more negative, um, and that can work quite nicely. Uh, but I think the, are you, are you, I think I'm pretty sure I get the the sourness from the music, you know. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, it's much easier to create drama if there's things going wrong in a in a song than if things are going right. So I was thinking about this the, the other day. Actually, because I, I remembered that in the mid nineties, I wrote two absolutely positive love songs. You know, just really, inc- just no, not there's not a hint of cynicism or poison or re- um, resentment in them at all, which is completely unusual. Unusual. For me. And I was thinking about those songs and going, "Oh yeah, they're quite good songs." Those, you know, and then I was thinking, I "Wonder why I didn't write more of those," and it's because. It's, I think it's because those sorts of songs, you start repeating yourself really quickly. You, the, 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 the kind of imagery that you can reach for to, to describe contentment and love and gaiety uh, is much more limited than the kind of language that you can use to 
describe resentment, jealousy, um, pain, suffering, all, all, all these things. There's a lot more in there, you know, just to get your teeth around. And also we connect to them more, don't we? Because we've all experienced those aspects of relationships. Yeah. It's not all light and fun yeah. and, you know, I love you, but let's get married, it's over. <laughs> but frustratingly, people do, people do connect with really up, happy things as well. And I really wish we could do that because when we do gigs, and I was thinking about David Bowie's Let's Dance the other day. I mean, you know, if you, you know, you hear that song and it makes you feel pretty good, you know. Uh, but he hated it, thinking, didn't he? He didn't like it. He, he but, actually, well, you know, it was his most unfavourite album. It's what yeah, he I said. Did, it's, it's super commercial. And yeah, I mean, it probably, it probably is kind of horrible, but what I think what most of us want is Let's Dance rather than uh, Masters of War. I mean, that's what we want because uh, there's, there, there's a, I think there's more of a sort of communal, uh, cathartic experience to be had from, you know, dancing along to uh, something blandly positive than there is to stroking your chin and scratching your nose to something, you know, a deep and profound Leonard Cohen song, you know. Uh, I mean, they, they, maybe they're, they're more private experiences, but I, I do find it endlessly frustrating that we don't have more like positive anthems that are that where people can just throw caution to the wind and and dance and have a good time. That's I mean, when we did that, we did some acoustic gigs at Edinburgh during the festival this year, and uh, half of the gigs, <laughs> somebody shouted, "Have you not, Somebody like have you, have you know? Have you not got any happy ones?" And uh, you know. It, it, raised a big laugh, and the answer is like, no. And that's, I think that's not good. I, I, think, that, I think that has to change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the beginning just to end. And, you know, I told you my DNA test. I'm sure if you had one, you know, it's going to be pretty way up there, Scottish. And anyone who's, yeah. uh, who's written Don't Come Home Too Soon for the, the Scottish uh, football team. And what's the latest one? Close Your Eyes and Think of England, which I absolutely yeah. loved. Well, just quickly at the end, what does it mean being Scottish? And for you, what does it mean then being English? Yeah, well, I mean, I always describe myself as half English because I grew up in England between the ages of five and ten, and uh, which were quite formative years for me. You know, it's when I started playing football and listening to music and things. Um, so I've always... Because of that, I've always really despised any streak of anti-Englishness that you that you find you do find in Scotland. I mean, it doesn't you don't come across it often, but you do you do um, find it lurking sometimes. And sometimes you find it lurking amongst the most urbane, civilized people who have very <clears throat> you have a very bitter uh, opinion of all of all English people. You know, which is just fucking insane. Um, so I, I always had this kind of dual nationality thing going on, and when I moved back to Glasgow in the late, sorry, the mid seventies, I didn't feel like I fitted in at all. You know, uh, I had to change my accent back from because I had a Midlands accent when I was a kid, so I had to sort of change that back to a Glasgow accent in order not to get the shit kicked out of me. Because um, I went to quite a tough primary school when I came back. Uh, and I just, I didn't think Glasgow belonged to me in the, the words of the, the immortal song uh, until 
probably until we did Barlands in 1990. So all that time, I, I felt like a, a fish out of water. You know, I, you know, I, all that early Delimitri stuff, I, it was all sung in an English accent. I mean, that's partly because of punk, but also partly because I never uh, felt particularly Scottish. But then some things started changing weirdly in the 90s. I remember noticing this travelling up and down from London to Glasgow a lot. Uh, and in fact, in fact more, maybe more in the zeros. Uh, and maybe maybe after Scotland got its parliament or something, Scotland started becoming more Scottish, uh, which I, I wasn't sure about. I didn't know whether this was a bad thing or, or a good thing. And I found myself becoming more Scottish and feeling more Scottish when I was in London than I had done previously. And I don't know whether this is just because there is a there's a slow atomization of the United Kingdom going on that we're not very sure why that that would be. You know, it would certainly explain Brexit, which I think was effectively just a form of English nationalism. Um, uh, and you've got Scottish nationalism, which you know, on the one hand it's presented as being a very progressive, almost well, a kind of progressive social democratic movement. But then on the other hand, Scottish nationalism is deeply a deeply suspect conservative um, instinct. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of that kind of identity, I still feel kind of British, even though the, the, even though the British nationalism is like you know, an even dirtier concept than, than English nationalism, you know. Um, so, yeah, I find all that quite confusing. If you talk to young people, when I say young people, I mean people below the age of 35. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they've got quite a positive take on Scottishness. They're not anti-English. Uh, they, you know, they love English culture, but they just fucking hate Westminster. And they see Westminster as the enemy, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and they've got this attitude that, that we need to get out of there. Um, whereas people of my generation have kind of got an attitude that I can see why political autonomy is a good thing for a small nation, but at the same time, I can also see why it's a bad thing not being represented in the Palace of Westminster as a as a polity, and I can see why that could be extremely dangerous. So um, it, I'm really confused about all that stuff. Uh, I, but it gives you stuff to write about, I guess, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I also, I just want to thank you at the end for writing songs that have sort of re reflected... Uh, a lot of the uh, trauma and uh, of my relationships <laughs> over the years. Our pleasure. Because <laughs> I haven't had the happy one yet, but which is coming. And finally, oh, thank you, for, thank you for calling me a housewife. <laughs> That's made my day. So, Justin, thanks a lot. Yeah. Cheers. You yeah. You too much appreciated. <laughs> okay. Bye. 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 And that's it from me and from Justin. Do check out the other interviews. I'll see you soon.